1: Welcome investors and podcast listeners to episode 43 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamochko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is December 6th, 2019, a lovely Friday. Not a ton going on in the market this week, but we're here, we're working harder than ever to bring you the impactful market moving events of the week. We wanted to chat about the jobs reports, both in the US, which reported just blowout jobs numbers for November. And we're gonna talk about what this means for a potential recession in 2020. Compare that to Canadian jobs reports, which were just horrific. In fact, the worst in 10 years. What's the story behind these numbers? We believe there's something potentially nefarious going on there. Then on the IPO front, the world's largest company went public. Why did the shares price so high? And lastly, we're going to chat about a blog post we put out this week called A Discussion on Short Selling for Intelligent Investors or Deranged Masochists. All right, we'll get into it with the most important market event of the week with U.S. reporting just blowout jobs numbers. For the month of November, the Labor Department reported that non-farm payrolls surged by 266,000. This absolutely crushed the consensus estimate, expectation of 187,000 jobs. Uh, This massive report, jobs gain, reduced the unemployment rate from 3.6% to 3.5%, which represents a 50-year low. Makes you ask, can it get any better than this? Wanted to note some of the details. Some of the jobs gained was attributed to GM workers returning from a lengthy strike. This boosted employment in motor vehicles and parts by over 41,000, which represented part of an overall 54,000 gain in manufacturing. Contrast that to October's jobs report, where you saw that figure fall by nearly 43,000. So you did have a bit of reversal effect. However, that would have been reflected within the consensus estimate. And that does not account for the, uh, the massive beat on this number. Some other positives. Average hourly earnings up 3.1%, beating expectations of 3.0%. You had some past revisions to the upside, which is positive, in September, nonfarm payrolls revised upwards by 13,000 and in October revised upwards by 28,000. Clearly investors loving it, markets loving it, S&P 500 up 1% today on the news and in my opinion. These jobs numbers and employment, they're a good coincident, or perhaps even a forward-looking indicator that to me implies no U.S. recession in sight, specifically for 2020. What are your thoughts on this positive economic data we're getting?
2: Yeah, so kind of the theme of today's podcast with, uh, with jobs in U.S. and Canada, and yeah, they have the, the interesting-looking granular. At a, in the granular sense is there's a 206,000 gain in the private sector. So this is really driven by the private sector as opposed to the public sector, um, which is a positive, as well as it is spread throughout multiple different sectors, w- you know, amongst manufacturing, uh, healthcare, care uh, and you know, resources and other such sectors. Which is really... So much. Absolutely. And it, just because, it, you know, it's not one single sector driving it. As well, I would point out that the one negative is that the participation rate dropped from 63.3% to 63.2%. However, that was from a six year high um, at that 63.3%. So it is one one negative aspect, but in the context of the entire jobs report, not really that big of a deal. The interesting aspect as well is that this is really, as you had mentioned, despite, you know, views of the trade war and, and companies just keep hiring. So In some of the surveys, companies are talking about how they are worried about the trade war, but they're acting in terms of hiring people, and that's what matters most.
1: Right, and so that uh, positive economic data, perhaps people aren't necessarily feeling it through what they say, but what's more important is what they do, and they are hiring. The economy's growing exceptionally well here, the longest economic expansion of all time. I would like to note If you look at the historical unemployment rate, plot it over a graph of the S&P, they're basically perfectly inversely correlated, i.e. when unemployment reaches its maximum, you typically have a trough in, say, a market cycle. And when unemployment reaches its lowest, I guess where it is, you could perhaps say, is 3.5% gonna be the lowest? Who knows? It is a 50-year low. They say full employment is what? north of 4%, so certainly the Federal Reserve deems this uh, very, very low unemployment rate number, but historically, if you look at the past market peaks, that lines up incredibly well with the bottoming of the employment rate, which is just something for investors to keep in mind, you know, valuations are at the high end of uh, historical, so something to keep in mind where we are, in fact, on, with this market cycle. and. Implications for uh, future market returns. In contrast to those beautiful US jobs numbers. Canada reported a stunning loss of over 71,000 jobs in November. This compares to the average forecast for a 10,000 job gain, so a massive miss here. Unemployment rate just skyrocketing from 5.5% to 5.9%, which represents the largest jump in unemployment since 2009. So in 10 years, Canada just reporting horrific numbers, while the U.S. is reporting basically best ever. Now, these job losses were broad-based, recorded in all major provinces. And then, after large expected job, job gains prior to the election, uh, something about the last few jobs reports, it seems kind of fishy, so I'm calling, I'm calling Stats Canada out for this one. I suspect there might be some election trickery because we just had a federal election in October. Now, if you go back, and we previously discussed these jobs reports, say in August and September, they were abnormally high, abnormally bullish, such that the liberal government could go into the election, basically saying, oh, the economy's so great, to try to attempt to get reelected which many expected that to happen then. So we we were skeptical about the previous jobs numbers being too high and then what happened post-election? Well, October jobs numbers were bad. Now November comes out and it's pretty much the biggest miss ever, the worst number in 10 years and makes you think, hmm, are these jobs numbers realistic for the past four months or was it front loaded to before the election? So it's really something that we have been telling listeners forever, it seems, on these Canadian jobs reports, you can never take one any one month into account. You definitely want to look at uh, some sort of trailing average, whether it be three or six months, a quarterly average, just because they're all over the place. Interesting to note, the market action, the loonie was down uh, nearly Uh, 1% on this news, so definitely not bullish for the Canadian dollar and perhaps goes against what the Bank of Canada was saying in their most recent meeting. I mean, they're one of the few developed market central banks holding rates steady and not cutting rates this cycle. What are your thoughts on the uh, Canadian jobs numbers here?
2: Yeah, so with a little more detail, so the job losses similar to the US, I guess on the inverse, is that the losses in Canada were broad based as well, um, both among goods producing and service sectors. Um, Ontario and PEI were actually the only provinces to actually see job growth and leading the pack in terms of the uh, job declines was Quebec, losing 45,100 jobs. Um, mainly due to a decline in manufacturing, while Alberta and BC both uh, lost over 18,000 jobs each. Lastly, this this week report really contrasts with the Bank of Bank of Canada's view. Um, their view has been that a healthy labour market will drive consumption and provide resilience despite the trade tensions, but that hasn't been the case over the last couple of months. Now, on on the year, there has been job growth, right. uh, but over these last couple of months, and maybe not some
1: good sentiment moving into the new year. It's important that investors be very sceptical of these numbers, and just keep in mind that this is still the strongest year for job growth in Canada. It in 17 years, so the economy is still ticking along, not doing nearly as well as the U.S. economy is. However, one area of strength was in compensation. You had average weekly wages increasing by 4.5% year over year, which certainly is pretty much the only positive aspect of the report. Otherwise, complete disaster, but in my opinion, perhaps some manipulation behind the numbers, so not to be trusted. Onto some IPO news. We had Saudi Arabia's state owned oil business, Saudi Aramco. They priced their initial public offering this week, raising nearly $26 billion and valuing Aramco at $1.7 trillion, which makes this the biggest IPO of all time and makes Aramco the largest company in the world by market capitalization. Now this share sale is at the heart of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's plans to modernize the Saudi economy and wean it off its dependence on oil. The country urgently needs tens of billions of dollars to fund mega projects and develop new industries. The previous largest IPO of all time was Alibaba's, now this Aramco IPO beat it by about six hundred million and they did that by selling only a one point five percent stake. They initially planned on selling a lot more, but this was a four-year process and it was not easy. They ran into a number of difficulties, including choosing not really not to sell it to many international investors. It was actually ninety percent subscribed to by Saudi Arabian investors, which is you know, really, really strange in a global market like like we have, and it'll only trade locally. No. So it's not trading on London or New York or anything like that stock is set to trade next week. And interestingly enough, they'll institute a daily 10% plus or minus fluctuation limit. So it can't go up or down more than 10% in any one day. As I indicated, oversubscribed. So this attracted bids worth uh, north of 44 billion, which represents an oversubscription of 1.7 times. And 10% went to non-Saudis, which is very abnormal, but it just goes to show you uh, this was partly priced for political reasons. You saw MBS, the leader of uh, Saudi Arabia, really gunning for that $2 trillion valuation and international investors has balked and they wouldn't even bite at this $1.7 trillion valuations that the Saudi investors were able to invest at. Interestingly enough, I read a poll today that indicated international investors had an average valuation for Aramco at 1.26 trillion, which indicates that at the current 1.7 trillion valuation, that the stock is overvalued by 40%, and it's overvalued for political reasons. So, what does that really tell you? What does that tell investors when uh, they think it's worth 1.26 trillion and it's trading at 1.7 trillion? Absolutely.
2: And so, in terms of the domestic demand, so I mean, Saudi banks were offering very favorable credit terms for their population to buy shares and I guess the question would be you know is is it really diversifying your economy if most of the investment is domestic? It's really just shifting that ownership from from the actual public fund to the actual populace themselves. so kind of moving from one hand to the other um, but economically somewhat the same as well aramco has said that it will pay an annual dividend of 75 billion dollars to shareholders which works out to be about a 4.4 percent dividend yield now it has been rumored that they're just going to have an artificially high dividend yield for the first number of years to entice investors and that that dividend yield may be scaled back a bit in the future
1: and speaking about artificial nature. It's just what happened with the oil market this week is that Saudi Arabia wanted higher cuts from OPEC to buoy the the share price and make this IPO successful. However, how sustainable is that? It seems like a lot of these actions are completely unsustainable. They're trying to put lipstick on a pig, you know, prior to putting it out there. Absolutely. And really, yeah, really not
2: sustainable. And the intelligent invest institutional investors see through that, right? right? They're not as concerned about daily commodity prices or even weekly or anything like that. They're looking at a longer term trend. As well, you know, we were discussing this as well, is that this does have a lot of implications for startup funding, being the corner, you know, with uh, the the Saudis being the cornerstone investor behind SoftBank's Vision Fund.
1: Right. They put in, what, north of $40 billion, which gets funneled from Saudi Arabia to SoftBank's Vision Fund to typically Silicon Valley startup. Absolutely, and even outside of the Vision Fund, the,
2: uh, the Saudis are talking about putting up an office in Silicon Valley and doing some of their own direct investing as well, which they already do a little bit, but really ramping up some of those efforts as opposed to just focusing on SoftBank's Vision Fund and ca- having an external manager for that mandate.
1: Wanted to touch on a blog post we put out this week entitled Short Selling for Intelligent Investors or Deranged Masochists. And this is really the sentiment with respect to short sellers this year, just because it's been such a tough go of it. You've had all markets going up over 20%, low quality stocks, what we call junk stocks, having pretty tremendous rallies, which happened in September, happened again last month. And when we talk about junk stocks, I wanted to talk about and uh, really discuss how we define junk stocks. So we basically rank all equities on a main five factor model. And so the five factors are quality, value, price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. Where the junk stocks come into play is we are looking for low quality, highly valued stocks with negative price momentum, poor operating momentum, and an unfavorable share price trend. So if we evaluate all 4,000 liquid North American securities and run a simulation over the past 20 years on these stocks with those five-factor models and separate them into deciles as ranked by this five-factor model, if we look at the junk stocks, which are the bottom-ranked stocks, they actually lost 10% per year over the past 20 years, which would make your investment go down 90% over those 20 years. And if we look at the top decile, i.e. the stocks that are of high quality with low valuations, positive price momentum, great operating momentum, and a favorable share price trend, those stocks rallied 17% annually over 20 years uh, on average, leading to a 23x return if you're invested in that portfolio. So junk stocks are really the stocks we think are circling the the drain. They're they're low quality, they have really bad momentum, they're overvalued. And if you look at a portfolio that is losing 10% per year, you may think, hmm, perhaps that could make a good short portfolio. However, Short selling, it's a strange thing because it requires a weird, you know, weird sort of mindset, different sort of skill, because it doesn't necessarily give you the exact opposite returns if you went long those securities. For example, in the scenario, say you go uh, along a portfolio, it drops 50%, and then rallies 100%, you get back to square one, the same amount of capital that you had. But due to the rebalancing and the compounding nature of short selling, you have this inverse-like trade-on. If you're short a portfolio, it drops 50%, and then you rebalance, and then it rallies 100%, your investment goes to zero. You're pretty much insolvent there. Uh, in spite of the exact same price action. If you're long, you're flat, but if you're short, uh, you've gone down to zero. So it's really important to keep that in mind. But what I talk about in this blog post is short selling as a form of insurance or selling lottery tickets basically. If you look at an insurance provider, they are constantly uh, issuing policies and from a policy uh, perspective, it's basically a negative expected value investment when you buy home insurance you're not expecting to recoup that right so it tends to be profitable for the insurance company occasionally you get a big payoff should something bad happen just like a lottery ticket owner occasionally it makes a big win but over time and on average it pays off to sell insurance it pays off to sell lottery tickets and the same perspective can be seen from short selling what we're doing in short selling junk stocks is basically you know underwriting insurance where we expect to have positive expected value over time but occasionally you know things go poorly and you have one that hits and it hurts but it does not necessarily undermine the long-term benefits of having shorts within your portfolio. Now, I'm in no way advocating for a short only portfolio. I think the best way to utilize short selling is to have it as a partial hedge against a long portfolio, say, you know, 50% short against say 100%, 110%, even slightly levered long portfolio. Nonetheless, even if it doesn't generate positive returns, over the long term, there are two main purposes of short selling within an investor's portfolio. Number one, it reduces portfolio volatility but. Be- by providing a hedge or a portion of a portfolio that will outperform when the market's declining, which we would have seen last year. This leads to lower volatility and mitigated downside risk for investors' portfolio. Now, number two, it allows hedge funds such as ours to leverage their longs, which are their best ideas, the securities that you have the highest return expectations of, with the goal of adding outperformance through increased exposure to these best ideas without a commensurate increase in market exposures. And then you really get uh, a little bit of a bonus from short selling in that when you sell a stock short, you get paid cash. And so then you have this cash and in an era of reasonable interest rates, you have that positive carry such that the interest you can earn on that cash from the short position it outweighs the cost of borrowing that security so it's a bit of a tailwind and an even better tailwind when rates go up and so if uh, long-term rates ever ever normalize if treasuries ever go up to a reasonable yield then you could have a tailwind of roughly five percent just from those short portfolio so we're big advocates of short selling not going to work out every month certainly not every year 2019 has been a tough one for short sellers but it really does not um, eliminate the need for those hedges in my opinion they are superior to basically buying puts because buying puts you're basically throwing that money away you're paying for that insurance and by short selling you're hoping to get paid for giving that insurance. So you want it to be profitable, but I think best expectations are to break even on your shorts, but provide that risk mitigation and also the ability to lever your long portfolios with the goal of generating that outperformance over the long term.
2: And one thing to really highlight with regards to the junk stocks that, that you had mentioned is that on the way that the, you'd mentioned circling the drain is kind of the analogy, but while they are circling the drain and on their way to zero, there still will be you know, face ripping rallies that they have the prop potential to go up 100% over the course of a day or two as they're then going back down. It's a negative trend, but still having some of those interday and daily volatility.
1: Yes, certainly. That's a great point. You need to have strict risk controls. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have a diversified short portfolio so none of them can inflict too much damage on those dead cat bounces, which every great short has on its way to zero. You know, you have these face-ripping rallies, these big dead cat bounces, but they're never sustainable and they just kind of keep going lower and lower and lower as they ultimately uh, turn out to be great short sale candidates. That's all we got for you guys this week on the Absolute Return podcast. Over the next week, I hope you have a great week of trading. Investing, and until next week, we will chat with you soon.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained, this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.